lights over my Look over here Welcome to another episode of Chatmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at tenementyard underscore and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com i'm the host for this episode and my name is Paige. in this episode we will be speaking with eleanor terlong a climate change and sustainability advocate the founder and executive director of jamaica climate change youth council and a phd candidate at the UIMONA in Molecular Biology. That's extremely impressive. Um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about the battle for cockpit country. And I think it's really good to just start off by talking about what exactly cockpit country is. Okay, sure. So cockpit country, as it is, is one of Jamaica's... Uh, forest it's our largest remaining contiguous rainforest so it's the largest forest taking up that amount of land um, where the cockpit country is situated it touches on a number of different parishes so trelawney saint anne manchester clarendon um saint james all of them have a little piece and i think the tip of clarendon as well um is a little piece of the cockpit country so it's actually a pretty vast expanse of land um it's in the hills it was um, historically first populated by the Maroons when they ran away from the plantations, you know, they ran to cockpit country because the terrain is so, is bush. So it's very hilly, it's very hard to get through. Um, it has a lot of valleys and stuff. So it was very good for them um, when they were hiding out from the British. Uh, now we hear about the cockpit country as, uh, I guess, a tourism development site because there are a number of endemic species in the area so persons will go there to like watch birds yeah. um visit the different species but i think most importantly for us uh the cockpit country is it has the head of the lord of mercy way river name martha bray river don't quote me i'm gonna check that and come back um but it the the cockpit country is the source for 40 percent of jamaica's water um and i think that is the most important function of the cockpit country um, when we talk about it and, uh, I guess, Jamaican lives. Thank you for that. Um, and I think it's really important for people to understand that this isn't just one parish. It's like several parishes and a large amount of water that supplies the, the island. Um, I'm guessing you've seen the Vice documentary about the mining in Copy Country, and I hope our listeners have seen it as well. If not, we'll definitely link it below in the description of whatever um, platform you're listening to this on. But can you... You know, um, I think that the Maroons in Akompong did a really good job of talking a bit about mining and the folks that live there did that. I just wanted you to talk about the impact of mining um, specifically on the environment. Okay, sure. Um, well, first of all, I would have grown up in a mining uh, community I'm from Manchester. Both of my parents would have worked at the bauxite company. So 
you know, coming from that background, or if anyone has ever lived in a, a, a bauxite town, you know about the red dirt, you know about the dust in the air, you know about what it's like, um, and what it smells like, and what it feels like. The biggest risk to the environment from mining is really air pollution, because the process of mining and also the process of transporting the uh, bauxite kicks up a lot of dust and particulate matter. Uh, the Jamaica Environment Trust, they actually did a report on the effects of bauxite mining um, called Red Dirt. I would recommend that all of your listeners take a read. It's, it's kind of long, but it's a very good read. Um, and it is probably the most comprehensive look at the effects of mining on Jamaica, both um, ecologically, economically, um, and also when we're talking about the health effects um, additionally, we're, so we talk about air pollution, um, and you know, the effects that that has, but additionally, mining also has implications for our water supply. Again, as I said, 40% of Jamaica's water is coming out of cockpit country. So if you're doing anything at all that might endanger that, whether it is, you know, by, um, getting into your groundwater or it is, uh, pollution from the waste so from the the uh bauxite processing process so for example there was we've had many spills over the years in rio cobra where we see effluent going into the water so whether it is from the mining itself touching on the aquifers um i noticed that you know mining doesn't really touch limestone so that's not something to worry about but it's always a concern because things can always go around and once you contaminate a groundwater source that's it you no longer have that water source um so those i think are the biggest um environmental impacts of mining again you also know that if you are going to mine you have to clear land so that is cutting down trees that is displacing animals that would have lived in the forest um we said that cockpit countries are largest contiguous rainforest so it's a very very sensitive ecosystem it's not something that you can replant and rebuild so once you have cleared that land for mining um you also are would have displaced those species and would have completely disrupted the ecosystem in that area the yard did an episode with diana mccauley the founder of the jamaica environmental trust on the red dirt report that eleanor mentioned um, when you find that episode, the there will be a link there to actually reading it, or you can listen to our episode for a shorter version of it. And the link is also on our website. Um, can you talk a bit about the impact that the mining industry has on the human health for residents? So you spoke about the environment. I just want to shift it a bit to the folks who are living in and around those areas. Uh, sure. Again, coming from an area like that, um, we would have. So you, you, if I don't know if you've ever been to Nain or to any or Ulster Spring or any of the the bauxite communities and felt what the air is like. And with that amount of dust in the air, it's automatically automatically going to cause respiratory problems, especially for people that have like uh, asthma already or allergies or sinusitis. It's anybody that has existing respiratory issues it's going to make them worse and then in persons that don't really have respiratory illnesses you see those also coming up because it's not just dust right so in the yes there's a, the red dirt from when you um when you dig up the land and you mine 
right? But again, we talk, I, mean, I guess you would have talked about the process in your previous episode from bauxite to alumina. And there's a lot of chemicals that are also produced in that process. So it's not just the red dirt, but it's also the chemicals that are coming off. It's very acidic. Um, and you can imagine what that's like when you start to breathe that in. Um, I was going through the jet report and the problem with bauxite and, um, you know, kind of measuring these things is that we don't really have a comprehensive record of all of the, the health impacts. And I think JET kind of tried to pull them together. That's why I think it's a very good read. But some of the things that were coming up, I saw one claim of impotence. Now, you have to be careful when you report these things because, as I say, you know, it's not necessarily verified that it's a box that necessarily caused the impotence. But it was a complaint that has come up. And it's some, something that we can investigate further because it's, it's, as I said, it's not just the dust, it's all of the chemicals in it. And I can see that just thinking about it scientifically, I can see how that can have. Uh, effects throughout the body um, again they would have compiled many many instances of the respiratory illnesses whether it's in children adults that kind of thing um, being affected by the mining and I know you said health but I also wanted to touch a little bit on property damage because that is a big thing as well um, uh, even in the vice documentary that you brought up they did a very good example of showing what happens to people's roofs when all of the sediment and the, the dust and everything settles on their roofs how it's actually uh uh putting their homes at risk it's it's threatening the structural integrity of their actual property so i think that's something that also needs to be spoken about in the conversation thank you for that and i think with the human um health and property damage and all of that and just the environment tied i just want to make a pivot to the recent IPCC climate report. Um, and I found a really great resource from the World Resources Institute that clearly outlines the report because I was not going to read that very long thing because I am employed nine to five. But from what WRI has said, we are on course to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming within the next two, decade, two decades. Um, we need to limit global warming to 1.5 by the end of the century. Um, our understanding of climate science, including the link to extreme weather that we've been seeing in the Caribbean and just in around the globe, is getting stronger than ever. And I think the link between human activity and, and climate change has been um, outlined and that data is getting stronger than ever. Can you just talk a bit about that report and just the current state of climate change? Okay, sure. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't read the report in its entirety either. Uh, not because I'm busy, but honestly, it was a little too depressing for me. I just haven't gotten my head um, to read it. But I did read the summaries and I yeah. kind of knew what was coming because we read the previous IPCC report and they were kind of flashing the warning signs then. So no, not, and I know not much has changed. Um, it's just the warning signs going off more. Um, I think for me, the most concerning thing was the, it's almost impossible for us to reach the 1.5. Um, and okay, I'm going to try to explain the significance of the 1.5 as well, because I think it's really important for people to grasp. Yes, so, please do. Sure. So when we talk about this 1.5 and two, two degree thing, it's we're trying to limit the, the warming of the earth to a certain amount. So one degree Celsius, 1.5 degrees Celsius, two degrees Celsius. Those are the thresholds that have been 
um, set out. So originally, when the world came together and looked at this climate change thing and said, OK, what do we need to limit uh, you know, global temperature rise to? There was kind of a, I guess, a consensus that two degrees Celsius would be the most that we could. So the world can get two degrees hotter at most or is everybody going to get off? Um, however, for those of us that live in what we call small island developing states, so we're small, we're poor, and we're surrounded by water, um, for us, that 1.5, what that 1.5 means is that the sea, so we know sea level rise is a, a, a symptom of climate change. When you reach 1.5 degrees C, the sea level rise is going to be so high that most of the islands are going to be underwater. So even if you think about some of the, the small Philippines islands, some of them are already underwater. You know, not all of them are inhabited, but I think they, they're a very good example for us to look at and see, okay, this is what is happening to islands. Especially, again, we're developing states, so we don't have the whole heap of money to build, I guess, move everybody inland and uh, build some big wall or whatever it is. We don't have the capacity for a solution so there's a slogan that came out that says 1.5 to stay alive and it's being champed it came out of uh, i think it was a jamaican that first uh um um sorry my brain is off i think it was a jamaican that first proposed it um and the, the the purpose of it is that really for us in the in the caribbean and in island states we cannot afford two degrees c by the time it reached two degrees c the whole are we done dead off already so in terms of limiting global warming, um, we have to limit that to 1.5. So bringing it back to the IPCC report, I think that was the most depressing thing for me because it's pretty much saying it's almost impossible for us to actually get to the 1.5. Um, the two degree look very sticky, right? Not, nobody's saying that it's, it's easy to get there. But it, it, the change that we need to actually reduce warming to 1.5 degrees has to happen like now, like yesterday. When, and I, when I say change, it has to be something so radical that we have to stop. And this is a worldwide thing. We have to stop use fossil fuels like today for that to happen. Um, so, you know, it's kind of for me personally coming out of that, you know, what do you do now? Um, because you cannot change what you cannot change. Um, and it is my hope that this IPCC report will kind of stir some sort of global action like okay wake up um we need to do this now and i'm a little bit more hopeful this year because recently we've seen a lot of the climate change effects hitting those countries that weren't feeling it before so the north america the europe um the more developed countries that were kind of escaping it so they could kind of think oh climate change is not happening it's not here yet it's rising their faces. So I'm a little bit more hopeful that that will kind of spur some, a real global movement to say, no, we need to take this seriously and all hands need to be on deck. Um, so I'm a little bit hopeful going into COP in October that the world will kind of, this will be the wake up call that we need. Um, not sure if that's going to happen, but yeah, that, that was pretty much my takeaway from the IPCC report that, you know, we have to make change now to today. I I agree. I think I share some of your optimism as well because I think largely we've been seeing the effects of climate change affecting small island states, like you've said. And this summer, especially, we saw wildfires from Australia to California. There was historic flooding in Germany unlike anything anyone in mm -hmm. Europe has ever seen before. And I think that now 
you know, I think it's really unfortunate that it would take the effects of climate change being seen in the global West for people to be like, okay, all right, yeah, maybe this real. Because I think that people in the Caribbean, Pacific, um, you know, small island developing states have been saying for years, like, we, there needs to be something done and we yeah. cannot do this on our own. Like, the, you know, this is what I was trying to explain to a friend the other day. Like if everybody in Jamaica tomorrow start drive electric car and stop use bag and stop use straw and we literally just cut out plastic in all of Jamaica, maybe even all of the Caribbean, that's still not enough to make a significant change. You know, this yeah. is the kind of problem that relies on all of us to do our part. This is a really, really horrible group project and some people mm-hmm. not for them part yeah it's, it's it's actually really sad and it's really unfair because it's the countries that contribute the least to climate change that are going to feel the effects the most that that's just how it works so all of the small countries you know if we're comparing the greenhouse gases that we're emitting to the big countries like the u.s and saudi arabia and china you know our contribution is so minuscule but when it comes to effects we, we're up on the front line are we first i feel it or we we feel it worst um yeah, and it is unfair and it you know it is depressing but yeah, as you said that is a situation that we're in and we kind of just have to figure out how do we um as a caribbean or as a, a collective of small island developing states really ensure that our voice is heard on the global stage and that um the other countries who have the power to make the change you know recognize the urgency of of what we need them to do thank you um you talked a bit about the impact of climate change on small island developing states, particularly Jamaica and the, the larger Caribbean. And you spoke about, you know, the more long-term effects of something I do not want to think about, which is the possibility of these islands disappearing completely, you know, entire nations and cultures um, disappearing. That's absolutely terrifying, but it's the reality that we face. Can you talk more about the short-term consequences of climate change um, on small island developing states? I mean, right now, me just have one up, right? I don't know where you live, if you live in Kingston, but we're just hot all the Unfortunately, I do, and I too am burning up. Right, and I think that, you know, it's a very simple thing to say, but it's it's a very clear example of, it's real, it's here. Um, So, temperature rise is is I guess the biggest uh the biggest thing that we'll see but temperature rise also has ramifications down the road um so again sea level rise is also something that we can see and sea level rise it happens for a number of reasons but one of the reasons especially in warmer waters is that the sea is getting hotter and physics say when things get hotter they expand so the sea itself is in addition to you know the ice caps melting and more water being in them just the heat itself is causing um the sea to expand and you see sea level rise wait so, i really never think about that part yes. i was just concentrating on the ice melting jesus Not just the ice it's the only things um oh, yeah no. so that that's a contributor i get the, the sea is also becoming more acidic so a lot of the carbon dioxide in the air gets trapped in our oceans um carbon dioxide when it mixes it produces carbonic acid so our sea is also getting a lot more acidic which the fish don't really like, it's killing them off. The corals definitely can't manage that. Um, so a lot of those tourism assets or those economic assets are under direct threat. Um, when you go back to sea level rise, and I'm going to keep saying this because I feel like, you know, when you watch those movies and you have this one person running around saying the world going to end, the world going to end, and nobody not paying them no mind till the world end, I feel like that person um, when I talk about sea level rise because I think a lot about downtown Kingston. 
I think a yes. lot about downtown Kingston and how many important assets we have right on the waterfront. So BOJ, um, or our parliament building, um, all of those things are downtown. All of those very important buildings are downtown. All of those very important documents are in those buildings. Yes, um, because and they're not on computers. They're in big seat they're notebooks. They're not on computers. They're all on paper, which means that, you know, when, I'm not even going to say if, when when that start flood, what is going to happen to, and what is going to happen to the functioning of our country? We already have so many gaps when all our parliament document them wash away. What we are going to do? Um, so for us, and when we talk about climate resilience, you have to kind of accept what it is. So yeah, we might want to build a seawall and that might or might not work. That is only one adaptation me- measure. <laughs> um, right, so adaptation, you know, it looks like a number of different things and it's really just how do we deal with the sun- scenario that we have in the best way. So building a seawall is one adaptation measure and it might work or it might not work. But when we talk about digitizing uh, those same records that we talk about, you know, the big book, you know, people don't think of it as a climate change resilience um, mechanism, but it is. And that, that is what resilience is. How do we create uh, solutions to live in the, the time that, that we currently live in? Um, so those are some of the short-term effects. I mean, another one that we... Might not have seen because we're lucky, but it, it is the increasing uh, very strong hurricane. Yes. Um, we've seen a no, quite a few category five, multiple category five hurricane seasons over the past years. Um, and there's a little bit of debate about whether mm-hmm. climate change increases the number of storms or not. Jury is still out on that. But what it definitely does, it increases the intensity of the storm. Yeah. So it might not necessarily have more storms than 20 years ago, which is what climate deniers are going to use to say, hey, you know, we did have 20 storms in 1980, whatever, and we only have 10 now. But when you look at the, the strength of the storm, you know, um, there was, I remember Dorian, which was, I think, two years ago, there was con. Um, conversation about if we need to extend the Saffir Simpson scale to be on category five, if we need to create a category six and seven because of these super storms that we're now seeing. Mm. Um, so as I said, you know, in Jamaica, we've been lucky to kind of escape and it's really luck. There, there's nothing else that has kind of kept us out of the way. And I, I, I don't want it to be the case that we have to have a Dorian um, and everything mash up for us to actually start to take uh, resilience a little bit more seriously. Absolutely. And I think that what I want to do is just get a couple of my thoughts out there and then loop in some other things and get your thoughts on it. Because, you know, we know that sea expansion leads to loss of land and soil, and this is made worse by the removal of mangroves, which is happening in Jamaica to make room for tourism, right? Similarly to the way mining is happening to for export. So we're removing land and soil to make room for export. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the sea is rising. We know that's happening. And more soil is being removed in addition to what we're removing. Um, This also severely impacts the agricultural sector. And it impacts people who depend on groundwater um, storage for irrigation. Mm -hmm. And I think that we brought up a good point about the fact that this is a group project, right? So globally, we need people to cooperate 
but also we can't as a nation be shooting ourselves in the foot with poor policy and yep. then say, well, the people them over this they need to start use straw too. <laughs> ah, um, yeah, and it's 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 difficult because on the global stage, you know, Jamaica is this big climate. We we have a lot of um we're revered on the climate change space. We're a climate leader. Mm-hmm. And um, that is true in terms of we have a lot of very good technical people on our team that negotiate. Um, and I will never take that away from them. But I also find it very disingenuous as this climate leader, quote unquote, that we are not kind of treating our country with the same urgency that we're kind of displaying on the international stage. Yeah. There is no political will about climate change you know we had elections a year ago and they must have dashed climate somewhere you know the manifesto them and it, w- it wasn't even a, a a discussion per se um and I, I think that in 2021 where we are we don't have the luxury to continue to to act like this is not happening we don't have the luxury to really operate um business as usual so we can't be using the same tourism uh, model where we they use from 19 how long because the circumstances are different exactly to, to as you say use our land and our soil um to to fill the pockets of of our international partners and then leaving our people and leaving our country in a more vulnerable state in 2021 where we're all already under so much risk um so it's a kind of hard place to 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 be in and to watch especially for me because i know a lot of the, the, the work that goes in um, on the technical side. Um, and I don't really see that reflected um, from a politician standpoint, which is sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you always understand, you know, politicians are always, you know, them have many people to please and, you know, they're not always going to be on the environmentalist side and blah, blah, blah. I get that. But I still don't think we are anywhere close to where we need to be um, if we really want to survive this, this whole climate thing. No, yeah, I I think that unfortunately we're we're nowhere close. Um, and it's these are rough conversations to have, especially when you live in these regions of the world and you live in this country. And the thought of it just quite literally being not not quite literally not being here is is hard. And I think that you know not to badmouth um, politicians. I do enough of that on other spaces in the internet (laughs) i i think that their plan is being comfortably dead you know i have uh i have a college professor who i remember he asked me and my my class a a question about climate change i think he was like 70 something and he's like what is your generation going to do and we you know we asked him what are you going to do he's like by the time it gets really bad i'll be comfortably dead like i don't i don't need to be responsible to solve this and yep. I want you all to know that the people in charge globally are much, much older than you are. And by the time this gets really bad, they won't be here to see it. So, you know, young people really need to need to be the ones to take this up and drive this. It's, I think, the most important issue because it's so essential to our existence. You know, there are people who are like, the issues are governance and the issues are that, girl, we might not have nowhere for govern if the world lights underwater. Thank so <laughs> this is the premier issue, um, you know, and I want you to talk a bit about the work that Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council is doing and and how people can get involved. So I don't leave people with this sense of doom and gloom, just kind of a call to action, if you will. So there's, you know, there are things that can be done and there are ways that the average person can get involved and, and assist in making a change. 
Okay, sure. Um, before I tell you about the JCCYC, I do want to just touch on the doom and gloom because I think it's an important conversation to have. Mm-hmm. And I did, I've said many times, I guess, on this episode, how depressing um the climate change space is, and it is. But um, as I mentioned before, I think this is the most hopeful. I I guess this is the most depressed, but also s- simultaneously the most hopeful I've been. Yeah. Um, because I think there is a possibility for change this cop. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen after this cop. I don't know if it's gonna happen or not. I don't know how I will feel after that. But I think that it's very important for us as young people, not just young people, especially as young people, as the ones that are going to have to deal with this, that we understand that we have a voice and it is important. A lot of times it feels like screaming into a void or shouting at a wall. But the more we organize and the, the more united we are and the more we make our voices heard, trust me, people are listening. Um, so for the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council, um, we started in 2017. Uh, when we started, we were really focused on building awareness about climate change. So just getting uh, more young people to understand what it is, you know, explaining as you, I would have explained, for example, so the sea, I get hotter and I expand. Most people don't know that. So explaining those little things to people mm-hmm. and really explaining not just the effects of climate change, but how do those effects translate into daily life? Um, as we have developed as a council, we've kind of branched out a little bit further from our awareness and we're kind of now moving into a lot more advocacy. Um, something that is also very important to me is what I've realized is that there are young people across Jamaica who are interested in climate change yeah. or interested in protecting the environment. They just don't really know where to go or what to do or, you know, what, what do I do? So what we try to do at the JCCYC is to create capacity building opportunities. So giving people training, um, letting them understand the environmental policy landscape, letting them know who the key players are, whether it is within their own community or their school or on a national level. Because what it's going to take, it's going to take young people in each community doing something in their own space. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, it, there has to be a top-down approach, of course. Don't, don't ever let anybody tell you no. Um, but it's also going to need to come from the community level up. So what we try to do is make young people like agents of change or climate champions so they can go into their own communities and execute this particular initiative or go into their community and talk to the people and make them more aware about climate change. Um, something that we're doing now that I'm very excited about is that we have gotten to a rural community in St. Thomas and we're trying to build a quote-unquote green community. Um, mm-hmm. What we really want to do is use that as a model for developing other rural communities. So um, community Albion Heights, them have no JPS, them have no water commission, them hardly collect garbage up there. So what we have done is we're putting a recycling program, which cuts down on the garbage going to the landfill. It also generates income for the community. We've taught them how to do composting. Again, that cuts down on what goes to the landfill. And then it also has use for them because a lot of them are farmers. Mm-hmm. Um we have given them water storage tanks. We're putting it, we've given four households completely outfitted with solar technology because, as I said, they don't have light, they may use generator. So at least now they may run them solar, they can watch them TV and thing. Um, and we're putting in solar street lamps. And what we want to show people is that this you have to think differently. So you can look at a community and identify the needs and solve them, but do so in a green sustainable way so mm-hmm. they will be better off when hurricane come and the whole will light gone because jps turn it off albion heights will be good yeah because they will have they will have their solar energy or whatever it is and they will be able to function and we want to see more places across jamaica 
really develop in that way, especially in rural Jamaica, because I do feel that rural Jamaica is, is very underserved. Yes. Yes, I sorry, I don't know if I went like on a tangent because I know I was supposed to tell you how to find us, so you can find us on there we go. Um, ourfootprintja.org or you are f o o t p r i n t j a um on all social media channels Facebook, in- Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, you can shoot us an email at ourfootprintja at gmail.com. But if you go to the website, you'll see all of the information if you want to join our mailing list or sign up all of that is on the website so you can just go there and yeah join us be a part thanks and yeah the website is pretty user-friendly i joined i signed up to join the mailing list i've been getting the emails and you know trying to trying to get get more involved well thank you so much for your time and the work that you do and the advocacy and all of that you know we've talked about it just being depressing and exhausting so thank you thank you so much for kind of taking up that that kind of work Thank you no problem um yeah I just want young people to remember that you know we we have the, this is our our generation has to deal with it we are the one we're going to live in the hot world we are the one we're actually going to sit with the 1.5 and the 2 degrees so it's really up to us to to decide what kind of world we want to live in and what kind of world we want to leave for our children to come and with that um this has been another episode of the Chetme political podcast by Tenement Yard Media don't forget to check us out on social media at tenementyard_ underscore, and that's on twitter and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com and don't forget to share the podcast with a friend. Yeah. Right over my love over here. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Judge a bless I with the brightest light and I shine upon the youth them blind God with their eyes of the truth and right. Their eyes of the truth and right. And until the day that my soul takes flight Babylon will hear my voice, cause we're there, so for truth and right.